You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. It is a good morning today. You'll notice under so many of your chairs there a new outline waiting for you, a different one that was put together here at the last minute. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. You might be wondering why we are turning to the Psalms this morning and not 1 Thessalonians. Truthfully, I tried to work on the message this week and I just couldn't do it. My heart has been so grieved and broken over the loss and suffering and pain that has come to our church. I just can't focus on the next two verses in our series. I just can't. We will get there, I promise, just not right away. Right now, what we need is intense prayer, healing, and hope. Last year, I preached a series from my living room titled Psalms of Hope. And when Abel passed this week, I kept going back to Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That verse fits within a broader context of what I believe to be one of the most hopeful psalms in the entirety of Scripture. It is also our most liked sermon on YouTube for whoever that's worth. Psalm 116 is a very intimate psalm. It's a very relatable psalm. It is a story of a dying man who cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord helped him. It begins with no superscription, so we don't know who this man might have been, but we do know that this is a very deep, personal psalm. The words I, me, and my appear more than 30 times. So this is a public expression of a very private experience. The first half of the psalm proclaims what God did for the psalmist, and the second half proclaims what the psalmist then did for God. In fact, the shift is so clear, the Septuagint and the Vulgate both cut this psalm in half. They separate it into two entirely different psalms. I'm not sure what that looks like, if it's Psalm 116a and Psalm 116b, or if it just throws the whole number system off. Either way, they split this, this psalm up into two pieces. But if you put these two halves together, which I believe they do belong together, they form a cohesive and beautiful picture of God's love for us and our devotion to him. This is a hope-giving psalm. It's a testimony intended to inspire and reinforce our faith when times get rough, when we go through difficult times. It reminds us that our God does answer prayer. He doesn't always answer it the way we want him to, the way we beg him to, but he does answer prayer. And it shows us what suffering looks like under sovereignty. So let's begin by reading the text. Psalm 116, the psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. 
The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord and the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst. O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The story is told about the baptism of King Agnes by St. Patrick in the middle of the fifth century. Sometime during the rite, St. Patrick leaned upon his sharp-pointed staff and inadvertently stabbed the king's foot. Once the baptism was over, St. Patrick looked down and he saw all the blood and he realized what he had done and so he fell down and he begged the king for forgiveness. He asked, why did you suffer all of this pain in silence? To which the king replied, I just thought it was part of the right. Unfortunately, the church is full of Christians who suffer in silence, thinking that that's just part of life. They don't cry out for help. They just lay there bleeding to death. And sometimes their pain and sorrow overtakes them to the point of despair, as we sung about this morning. The writer of Psalm 116 certainly fell into that trap, but he also had the sense to open his mouth and to not remain silent. In verse two, he says, I will call on him as long as I live. In verse four, then I called on the name of the Lord. Verse 13, I will call on the name of the Lord. And again in verse 17, I will call on the name of the Lord. The psalmist knows that suffering in silence is not an option for the believer. And there is only one place to turn when your heart is full of sorrow, overwhelming sadness, is not a pleasant experience for any of us. Sure, when things are going well, sometimes we are drawn to the darkness. Sometimes we put on a sad song because we want to feel something other than what we're feeling at the moment. But nobody likes depression. Nobody likes suffering and anguish and pain. When the hard times do come, we want them to end. Sooner the better. And yet, sufferings, our sovereign God, he allows these sufferings to come into our lives because they will always produce something good in the end. 
This psalm encourages the suffering saint to call upon the Lord and to look beyond their pain to a time when they will be delivered and they will receive these benefits. So today we have before us four encouraging outcomes for those who turn to the Lord in their distress. Having relied on God in their grief, what do saints walk away with on the other side of it all? Well, first of all, delivered saints love the Lord. Your love for the Lord will grow and abound and increase when you go through intense difficulty. That's how this psalm begins. His first words are, I love the Lord. And everything that he is about to tell us flows from that statement, his love for the Lord. And here's why. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. In other words, the believer's love for God is based on God's faithfulness to them. Why do we love the Lord? 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us. Charles Spurgeon once visited a friend who had built a new barn. And on top of that barn was a weather vane with the words, God is love, printed on it. Spurgeon asked his friend, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God's love is as changeable as the wind? To which his friend answered, no. I believe that God is love whichever way the wind blows. You see, unlike us, God's love is always there. It is unchanging. He doesn't withdraw himself like, like we do, and he doesn't choose to love us because we deserve it. We say God is love because love is so much of who God is. And those who have received his love have every right and every reason in the world to love him back. Having experienced the goodness of God firsthand, especially during the trials of life, we can say with certainty, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You see the parts of me that I can't see myself. And you know, O oh God, that I love you. Listen, we don't love God for no good reason. We have every reason in the world to love him. As recipients of mercy and grace, we can't help but love him because he first loved us. The psalmist restates the reason for his love in verse two, and he adds a promise. He says, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. He's inclined his ear to me. Because God has shifted in his seat and he has leaned over to hear my cries, I will make it my lifelong resolution to seek him and to trust him moving forward. When you have walked through the fire with God, you know exactly where you need to go when life gets hot. You know exactly what you need. You don't need anyone or anything else. You need God. You need a God who will hear you, not like the gods of, of ancient times here that when this was written, not like those, those gods that have no heartbeat, that have no breath, no, no life or thoughts of their own. No, this is a God who hears, who understands, who sees, who cares. And that is the God you need because you've been there. You've been there. You have experienced the worst that life has to offer, and you are living proof that God does answer prayer. 
He has done it before and he will do it again because God is love and he never changes no matter how bad it gets. Look at verse three. He says, the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. He's describing a life and death situation where he is trapped in the snares of death. The image here is of an animal trapped in a hunter's net. Only death itself is the hunter and and he is the prey. The word pangs here is a rare word and it means very specifically to be distressed by constriction. It's this idea of being squeezed on all sides until you are so constricted you can't even breathe. That's the idea. He's saying death has caught me in the ropes of its trap and I can feel the grip of Sheol, the grip of the grave closing in on me. It's interesting that throughout Old Testament poetry, death and the grave are portrayed as being aggressive and violent. They don't sit around and wait for a man to grow old and ready. No, death and the grave come after you And they make you sick with sadness and they crush your soul with grief. He says, I suffered. I suffered distress and anguish. So whatever you're going through, just know that this psalm describes rock bottom. It describes a suffering saint trapped in the jaws of death with no escape, constricted, being squeezed on all sides. And yet look at how he responds. Verse four, then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. To call on the name of Yahweh is to appeal to Yahweh's character. It's more than just saying the name out loud. It is to appeal to who he is, his name, his person, his character, his reputation. And this wasn't a brief appeal. It wasn't a one and done sort of thing. This verb literally says, I kept on calling. Now, it's no wonder that this suffering saint's heart is so full of love for the Lord. Because Yahweh heard him, he inclined his ear, he leaned down and he laid his ear next to him. He didn't ignore his cries or leave him to die. Instead, he pulled him out of the trap. Who wouldn't love a God like that? I hope that you can say, I love the Lord because I know he's heard me. I know that he has heard my voice and he has delivered my soul from death. I hope you can say, I have called on him before and he was there for me. So I am gonna keep on calling him for as long as I am alive. We know that death will come. It will come for all of us. No one here has an immunity to that. And yet, for as long as we are alive, we can keep calling upon this God who hears and cares and loves. Or perhaps these verses are not past tense for you. Maybe you're suffering distress and anguish right now, like so many of us are. If so, here is what you need to do. Here is the takeaway from these first few verses of this psalm. You need to hold on to what you know about God's character. Call on the name of the Lord. Ask him for mercy and pray for deliverance. 
If you do, he won't only prove himself faithful, he will fill your desiccated heart with love. That is the first encouraging outcome for those that, the Lord, uh, that, that turn to the Lord when things get hard. Delivered saints love the Lord. Number two, delivered saints trust the Lord. They trust the Lord. And verses 5 through 11, we see God's trustworthy nature. We see why the psalmist turned to the Lord when he was down and why he will continue to turn to him for the rest of his life. It's because he's trustworthy. These are memories and descriptions about God intended to reassure anyone who might be caught in the trap of verse 3. They are crucial reminders and fundamental truths about God. These are the facts that you can't afford to forget when the grave opens its mouth for you, and someday it will. There are three of them. First of all, we need to remember his credentials. Remember God's credentials. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He says, don't forget these essential qualities about God. He is gracious, he is righteous, and he is merciful. These are the qualities that shine brightest when God obliterates the snares of death. To quickly define each term, his grace is our getting what we don't deserve. His mercy is our not getting what we do deserve. And his righteousness is our guarantee that he will always do the right thing. He always will. He will never lie to us. He will never change his mind or back out on any of his promises. He will always do the right thing because that is who he is. He is righteous. Ultimately, we see all three of these attributes, his grace, his mercy, and his righteousness. All three of these attributes come together in the most brilliant demonstration on the cross. It is there that God's mercy is undeniable. As sinners who trust in Christ for salvation don't get what they deserve. Eventually, death will come for us all. And when it does, guess what? We all deserve hell. Every last one of us. In the history of the world, only one man has ever lived a perfect life. Only one man has never offended God by sinning against him. And that man, Jesus, is the only man who doesn't deserve God's eternal wrath against sin. What does that mean? That means the rest of us do. It is the great mercy of God that saves us from the death that we all deserve. It is also at the cross where God's grace is magnificently displayed as he gives us what we don't deserve. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death, those who trust in him have his righteousness accredited to their account. By dying your death, it is as though you lived his life. Your sins are paid for and God has graciously given you the reward that his son has earned eternal life with him. But most amazingly of all, what do we see at the cross? We see God's righteousness because God won't allow sin to go unpunished. His justice demands it. If God simply looked the other way, if he ignored our sin, if he overlooked our offenses, 
without punishing anyone for them, he would no longer be a good God. He would no longer be a perfect judge. Instead, he would be a God who excuses evil. He would be an evil God, and he cannot do that. He must deal rightly with men and judge them according to their deeds. So he punished his son instead. Jesus died in the place of sinners. It's the only way for God to justify the ungodly and still be righteous. His precious son sacrificed himself. He gave up his life so that you could have life. And all you have to do is die to yourself and live for him. If you haven't done so already, do it now. We don't know how much time we have. Repent of your sins. Believe in this God-man's sacrifice and his perfect standing before God, and it will be given to you. God will not hold you accountable for your sins. And what he did for his son, he will also do for you. His son died but he didn't remain dead. He didn't abandon his son to the grave. As the snares of death encompassed Jesus, and as the pangs of Sheol laid hold of him, God the Father resurrected his son from the dead and exalted him to the degree to which he was humbled. And he will do the same for you. If you simply deny yourself, pick up your own cross, and follow this Savior. Because it is at the cross of Christ our hearts break open and we can't help but declare the obvious, saying, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He goes on in verse six, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. This word simple is typically used throughout Proverbs to describe the foolish or the naive or the gullible. But here it is likely a reference to the helpless, to the inexperienced, to the common man, the common folk. He's saying that God doesn't triage his salvation. He doesn't deliver the cream of the crop and discard the rest. He preserves the simple, the plain, the, the little guy. And even those who are brought low He lifts them up. He saves them. He loves them. And he loves to save them. Listen, you will not find a better Savior. There is not a better offer on the table. This is the best. This is the only. He is the gracious, merciful, righteous God who cares for the simple and saves the lowly. When sorrow comes, friend, remember his credentials and then remember his care. Remember his care, verses seven, eight, and nine. The psalmist says, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In other words, relax, relax, get some rest. Remember the Lord's care and chill out. After all, it's not like the Lord is stingy. His dealings have been bountiful. They have been literally super abundant. And that abundance is described in verse 8. He says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. What an abundance. What an understatement to say that our God is abundant. 
and how he has dealt with us. He delivered my soul from death, meaning that he breathed life into my inner man and he saved my soul. The body will die, but the soul lives on. He delivered my eyes from tears, meaning that he dried my eyes and he relieved my heart of anguish. He filled my heart with something better than what I had. He gave me joy, he gave me peace, he gave me the fruit of the Spirit when the fruit of my heart was nasty. And he delivered my feet from stumbling, meaning he picked me up when I fell and he put me back on track. In other words, he has relieved me of absolutely everything that causes sorrow. Relieved me from death, anguish, and falling into sin. How? By giving me salvation, joy, and stability. God's care is complete. It's complete. And the result is the resolve found in verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Listen, the natural outcome for anyone who has experienced the Lord's care in their lives is obedience. Warm, close, appreciative obedience. Rewarding obedience. In Genesis 17, 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. To walk before the Lord is to live for the Lord. To see we're, we're here because we have work to do to recognize the task in front of us. God saves us because he's not finished with us. He has you here in the land of the living for a reason. Fast forward to the New Testament, to Ephesians 2.10, and it's all spelled out for us, saying, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, there are no couch potatoes in God's army. None. If you have been saved, you have been set apart to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. When times are tough, remember his credentials and remember his care for you. And then finally, remember his character. His character. Verses 10 and 11. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Now that sounds strange. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, even in English. So full disclosure, the reason why it reads so strangely is because verse 10 has some very tricky Hebrew. It is a hard verse to translate in a number of ways. Personally, I believe the best translation is this, that it simply says, I believed, therefore I said. I believed, therefore I said, because that's how Paul interprets this verse when he quotes it in 2 Corinthians 4.13. When we look at it this way, as more of a cause and effect statement, the psalmist is saying, I poured my heart out to the Lord because I believed in him. I knew I could be honest with God because he alone is trustworthy, because I know his character, and I also know that everyone else is a liar. Friend of mine, very good friend of mine, who lives in another state, plays music and bands. I remember years ago, he wrote a clever little song entitled, Everyone's a Liar But You. That's true when it comes to the Lord. Everyone is a liar but him. This word liar means false, deceitful, unreliable. When he says all mankind are liars, he isn't being cynical, he's being truthful. 
Listen, if you turn to man for help, I guarantee you, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed because people fail. They might be willing to help. They might even be able to help. But in the end, the best of men are men at best. If we look to one another in our anguish, we can comfort one another, yes. We can find comfort in one another. We can minister to one another. But we will also find disappointment. Not so with God. Unlike our fellow man, he is completely trustworthy. You can see why this delivered saint trusts the Lord. His credentials, his grace, mercy, and righteousness to preserve the simple and to save the lowly. His care, his total deliverance from death, anguish, and sin. So we can then walk before him and to live to fight another day. And then his character, his perfect record for never failing and never disappointing. You put it all together and you ask yourself, if you can't trust this God, who can you trust? Who do you have? Is there a better offer on the table? And the answer is no, there isn't. There's an old story of a sea captain who attended a prayer meeting in Boston back in the 1800s. And there he shared his thrilling experience with a man who had almost drowned. Here's what he shared. He said, a few years ago, I was sailing by the island of Cuba when the cry ran through the ship, man overboard. It was impossible to put up the helm of the ship, but I instantly seized a rope and threw it over the ship's stern, crying out to the man to seize it as for his life. The sailor caught the rope. Just as the ship was passing, immediately I took another rope and making a slip noose of it, attached it to the other and slid it down to the struggling sailor and directed him to pass it over his shoulders and under his arms that he would be drawn up onto, onto the board. He was rescued, but he had grasped the rope with such firmness and with such a death grip that it took hours before his hold relaxed and his hand could be separated from it. With such eagerness indeed, he had clutched the object that was to save him, that the strands of the rope itself became embedded in the flesh of his hands. Friend, that is exactly what it is like to be saved by God when death surrounds you and the grave grabs you. And you cry out to him and you say, my God, deliver me. The legs of your faith grow stronger. And your reliance on the Lord turns into a death grip of intense, unshakable trust. Those rescued sinners who have been delivered from death, what do they do at the end? How do they come out on the other side? Do they come out bitter, broken, and worse? No. They come out the other side loving the Lord and trusting the Lord. That's number two. Number three, delivered saints serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. The next few verses answer the rhetorical question of verse 12. He asked, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? How can I repay him? What could I possibly bring to show my gratitude to this God? And the answer is obviously he can't. He can't, no one can. The God of heaven and earth already owns everything, including heaven and earth. There is no way that he could possibly repay the Lord. There is no way that any of us could ever possibly repay the Lord. But there is something we can do. And there is something that the psalmist does do. And that we can tell others what the Lord has done. 
He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. It's important to point out that he is able to lift up this cup of salvation, not because he formed it and fashioned it himself, not because he was able to make this thing out of the fire, but because God gave it to him in the first place. This cup of salvation, it stands in dark contrast to the foaming cup of wrath that we all deserve. In Psalm 75, 8, Asaph writes, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is a cup you don't want. And this is every man's cup, every man's destiny who refuses to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But the delivered saint takes another cup, takes another destiny, and he holds it up high in service to the Lord, and he makes good on his vows. What are these vows? These vows are simply promises of obedience that he made during his distress, where the believer cries out, Lord, if you save me, I will worship you. I will worship you for the rest of my life. I will sing your praises. I will serve you in every day that you give me. God, with every breath that you give me from here on out, I will breathe for you. The psalmist says, I may not be able to pay you back, but I can publicly declare your deliverance in the midst of all the people, in the presence of all your people. Verse 15 then records the public declaration of what he has learned throughout the course of this whole experience. What is it? after all of this that he now has to proclaim and to declare to the rest of the congregation, to all the other believers, what encouraging word does he have here on the other side of death, on the other side of being delivered from death? What does he shout? He says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This word precious, it means prized, and highly valued. He says God is personally invested and he values, he prizes the final moments of those who finish well. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this verse. He said, the deathbed of saints are very precious to all believers who delight to treasure up the last words of the departed, but they are most of all precious to the Lord himself, who views the triumphant deaths of his gracious ones with sacred delight. And then he adds, if we have walked before him in the land of the living, we need not fear to die before him when the hour of our departure is at hand. Friend, when you stand before the risen Christ, you want to hear those words. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. A couple years ago, we saw in Philippians 1 how Paul viewed death, how he saw it as a blessing. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? It's to gain. It's to gain more than what I have even here in the land of the living. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. There's a lot of good here. I still have a lot of ministry left. There are things that I need to do for the Lord that have eternal value. It's fruitful for me to stay. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. 
I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul longed to be with the Lord, and yet he knew it wasn't time yet. God still had work for him to do. It is as George Whitfield so aptly put it, he said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. Until then, there is only one way for a saved sinner to live. Verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. He says, I am your servant, not once, but twice, saying, I belong to you. You call the shots. You tell me where to go and what to do. I am yours. But then he adds this phrase, the son of your maidservant. Hearkening back to the Torah in Exodus 21.4, where it describes what happens to the son of a slave who is born to a maidservant. The dad, who is also a slave, is at that point able to go free. They are released. But the mother and son are required to stay and remain loyal to their master. He's saying, I am double your servant. And where else would I go? I owe you everything. Since you have set me free from the chains of death, you have loosed my bonds, I will submit to your authority and I will do absolutely everything that you ask me to do. It doesn't matter. However you want me to do it, I will do it with love, loyalty, reverence, and respect until my work on earth is done. Make no mistake, friend. Rescued sinners serve the Lord. They do not serve themselves. And that brings us to the end. The fourth and final encouraging outcome for those who turn to the Lord in distress. Delivered saints love the Lord, trust the Lord, and serve the Lord. Finally, they praise the Lord. They praise the Lord. Look at verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Much like the writer of Hebrews would later charge us in Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, he would say, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He says praise, thankfulness, appreciation, gratitude, respect, gratefulness, adoration, recognition, worship, continual acknowledgement of, of his name and his divine reputation, all of that pleases the Lord. It is a pleasing sacrifice for us to do that, to praise him in that way. And those who have been rescued are pleased to praise him. At this point, the psalmist is so full of joy and thanksgiving, he repeats himself. Verse 18 looks familiar because it is the same as verse 14. Again, he wants to praise the Lord publicly. He says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. And he ends saying, praise the Lord. Our delivered saint may have called out to the Lord and prayed in private, but there is nothing private about his praise. He is determined to go into the Lord's courts, into the Lord's city, into the Lord's congregation. He wants everyone to know that God saved him when it was impossible for him to save himself. Friend, there is no such thing as a closet Christian. Not really. If you have experienced any of the Lord's goodness in your life and ultimately the salvation of eternal life in Jesus Christ, 
then why in the world would you ever be silent? After recounting all that the Lord has done in this psalm, how does he end? He ends with a command, a command to praise the Lord. We begin with, I love the Lord, and we end with, praise the Lord. As anguished petitions turn into answered prayers. Elizabeth Prentice, the wife of a Presbyterian minister, spent most of her adult life as an invalid with chronic pain. Hardly a day went by without constant hurt coursing through her body. And yet her friends would describe her as a cheery, bright-eyed woman with a keen sense of humor. We all know people like that. People with chronic pain, severe illnesses, suffering, physical sufferings. And yet, we don't understand. We, don't, we can't hardly explain, how is this person so cheerful? How do they shame me every time we get together? That was Elizabeth. She was a rock. She was always strong in her faith and encouraging to others. That is, until her pain went beyond the physical. Until tragedy struck. The princess family suffered the loss of two children. And it was enough to drive her to despair. It brought tremendous sorrow into Elizabeth's life. For weeks, no one could console her. In her diary, she wrote of, quote, empty hands, a worn out, exhausted body, and utterable longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences, end quote. This woman was grieving. And during this period of grief, Elizabeth cried out to God, asking her to minister to her broken spirit. It was at this time that Elizabeth's story became a living testimony. Why? Because like our psalmist, she didn't remain quiet. She didn't suffer silently. She called out to the Lord in her despair. And now, as a result, how we benefit for almost 200 years, the church has been encouraged as we sing the words that she penned in her deepest sorrow. More love to thee, O Lord. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Lord, to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Lord, to thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me. More love, O Lord, to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be. More love, O Lord, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Christian, when death traps you and the grave grabs you, cry out to the Lord. Our gracious, merciful, and righteous God, close the door and lift up your voice and let him be the one to dry your eyes. Don't suffer in silence. Instead, remember who he is and what he has done, knowing that no matter what happens, whatever comes your way, you are one of his children and he has you covered. And on the other side of your pain, I promise you, you will love the Lord Trust the Lord, serve the Lord, and praise the Lord more than you ever have. Heavenly Father, Lord God, especially in times such as these, when there is so much pain and heartache and suffering in the world, 
as we are constantly reminded of death in the grave. God, may we never lose sight of you, of your character, of your faithfulness, of your truthfulness, of your grace, your mercy, and your righteousness. Lord, you are altogether good, and you love your children. You care for your children. You incline your ear to us. You bend down. You stoop, and you listen to our cries for help. God, may we sense that. May we know that deep in our hearts. May we not grow more bitter, more angry. May we not implode in upon ourselves, but rather let us fall forward into your arms. God, we pray for those here within this congregation who are suffering. Lord, would you heal our hearts? Would you remind us of these truths? May we cling to the rope of your salvation with everything we have. And may we never let go. You are God, and we are not. And we know that death is coming for all of us. May we face it as those who have no fear, knowing that we belong to you, that you are our God. And may we honor you, may we worship you, may we sing your praises publicly in the land of the living with every breath that we have. May we honor you. May we sing of your faithfulness, your deliverance, your goodness every day of our lives. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for such a great salvation. Thank you for the cross displaying all of these attributes, all of these truths that we have unpacked today. And may we never, ever forget them. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.